Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. This week, Michael and I are going to chat with a guest, Rebecca Lau, about gaming. Gaming is one of the largest growth areas in Web3, but a lot of folks don't really have any sense of what a Web3 game entails or what business models are or what it even means to have a Web3 game. Michael, were you a gamer back in the day? No, it's funny because it's a, it is such a big part of the crypto ethos. In fact, I think one of the connections to gaming is not just that I think people see a real affinity between you know NFTs and uh, you know and other aspects of the metaverse with gaming, but also yeah, I think a lot of early crypto engineers sort of come out of this culture. Some of the first exchanges were built with connections to gaming and things like that. So I think it's a really important field. But no, uh, sadly, I was not, uh, not that. I mean, yeah, my, my well, kids are, but I'm not. I, I was kind of an elementary school gamer and a middle school gamer, um, for sure. So all of the early Nintendo and all of that was something really important to me. In fact, for my dating myself, for my 30th birthday, some dear friends, of mine, they, they were like, well, what is the one thing you'd love to do? And I was like, I would love to play old school gauntlet. I would love mm. to find a way to play that game with four of us. And so these lovely folks went out and figured out how to get gauntlet um, I, I didn't get stuck amazing. with the wizard character, which is amazing. And so it was kind of a throwback because I'm a giant nerd, as you know. But mm-hmm. I also think so much of our sci-fi is predicated on games, right? So mm-hmm. much of the futurism that we imagine is predicated on games, whether it's Ready Player One, whether it's the new novel Tomorrow, Tomorrow, and Tomorrow, which is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. If you want a history of kind of gaming and gaming culture and what it takes to make a game, that's I highly recommend. I couldn't put it down. But so much of our sci-fi is rooted in this concept. And of course, all of the metaverse concept is really rooted mm-hmm. on the idea of being immersed in a game, right. in a game reality, not to mention the fact that the early economies we thought about in the digital space were about the fact that, okay, I'm going to go through here and then I get my whatever it is. I get my extra, I suppose, gun or I get my extra buddy or I get my wand or you know my purple hair or whatever it might be. The ethos of gaming, I think, to your point, is very much embedded with the crypto kind of culture and ecosystem. And of course, none of that's separated from how we think about digital assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'd love to bring in Rebecca uh, to help us think about how we frame some of this up, what it, where have we evolved and what are we doing? So uh, Rebecca Lau, she's a co-founder and CEO at uh, Saga, which is a Web3 protocol for launching the next thousand chains in the multiverse. It allows developers to take a single tenant VM and automatically launch it on a dedicated blockchain complete with fully provisioned validators and an optimally incentivized security structure. Fear not, listeners. Rebecca's going to walk us through exactly what that means. So Rebecca, let's bring you on in and and tell us about Saga. Thanks so much, Sheila. Thanks for having me on. And Michael, it's great to see you again as well. I think the first time I was on Money Reimagined was almost two years ago. So um, you're completely different. You've got 180 degrees from there almost. (laughs) I know, I know, right? dynamics. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we were talking about short-term financing back then, and now here we are in funding games. So yeah, Saga is a chain to launch chains. Um, Sheila, thanks very much for that introduction. Uh, We allow developers to automatically get onto their own dedicated chains. And we are focused on gaming and entertainment. So why dedicated chains for gaming and entertainment? Because what you need for these applications is the highest performance environment possible in Web3. And that really is having your own dedicated chain or your own dedicated block space. 
Um, so this is an environment in which it, it is a chain in its own right. So you're not facing any sort of throughput or congestion issues from sharing block space with other applications. Uh, your gas fees are entirely controllable by you. In most cases, uh, games and NFT projects don't want to charge any sort of gas because it's all about the user experience. Uh, and so it allows for that kind of flexibility. But I'm now at Saga. This is what we do. And I'm thrilled to be here. So walk us through uh, like the evolution of gaming, right? So how mm -hmm. maybe like what gaming looked like in the early days? I mean, I remember, you know, Oregon Trail, just yeah. completely, but like, I mean, I love Oregon <laughs> Trail, right? It's like a whole game for my generation. Yeah, yeah, love it. Uh, and then Web 2 Gaming, what's Web 2 Gaming and what, what the heck is Web 3 Gaming? Level, level set us there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, Oregon Trail, that was part of my childhood as well. And yes. I looked forward to playing that every single week. Yes, my, my supplies were very important. So that was, that was the first generation of gaming. So really sort of these desktop native or console native games. And then we started to get into um, what we now know as Web2 gaming, which is a lot of either free-to-play, so very casual games that tend to be mobile games, um, or they tend to be more, more complicated games, whether that's also console-based or desktop-based. Uh, but everything now has some sort of wired aspect to it. So you see a whole industry forming around communities that game together. So things like Steam for distribution, but also Twitch, if you want to watch people play games. There are so many platforms for gaming communication. Uh, you guys remember that Slack, which is now a tool that almost all enterprises use, started off as a gaming communications platform. And so gaming has become a really, really serious business. And I would say that in many ways, um, technology looks to gaming for the frontier because gaming is one of the most in or it's one of the most demanding technology stacks out there. You need high performance. You always have a lot of users that are interested in it. The game design and the game experience just has a lot of requirements on the technology stack. So if you make it work for gaming, then you can typically make it work for many other use cases as well. But also from the other side, gaming has garnered a lot of interest from entertainment because entertainment entities that have traditionally focused on things like feature films, TV, they are now looking at gaming as a very serious extension of their IP. So gaming has really exploded thanks to Web2. Now we're looking at Web3, where, you know, first and foremost, what is Web3 gaming? I think that for a lot of people in the early days, Web3 gaming was all about this model of play to earn, which meant that if you played a game, then you got the tokens associated with that game. And that was your reward for playing the game. And maybe there were some other game dynamics in there, but that was the general mechanism. You play the game to earn the token. And Axie Infinity is probably the most famous example of this. In the bull market, that's great because token values go up. But now that we are in a more muted market and a bit of a bear market, that dynamic is, is no longer really that tenable. It's not fun to play a game in which you're not earning very much. And I think what we've learned from that truth is that at the end of the day, people play games because they want to have fun. They want to have an entertaining experience. They want to form a community with the gamers that they've met through playing this game. And so that is what Web3 Gaming has really become. As we've seen Web3 Gaming evolve over the course of the last year, it really is around A, the community aspect, so the social aspect, forming guilds, gaming DAOs, gaming together um, to build better games, and ultimately leading to the decentralized generation of content. So <clears throat> I would say that of all dynamics in gaming that Web3 Gaming really recognizes and celebrates, it is that when you launch a game out there as a creator, eventually, if you've done your job right, 
your players are going to love the game a lot more than the original creator. So the gamers are going to really get into it. They're going to want to create characters of their own. They're going to want to come up with their own storylines. They're going to want to contribute to this game. They're going to come up with their own servers, in other words. And what Web3 is able to do is to reward those contributors directly for that kind of intellectual property. And you could say that that applies to any sort of entertainment property, but I think gaming is particularly ripe for it. Uh, and that's why you're seeing the proliferation of Web3 gaming now. So, Rebecca, when you started talking about, you know, one of the, the reasons why I think there's this connection between just all software development and gaming, people, you said people look to gaming because it's a really complicated, high performance needing right. uh, form of, of software. You know, and I think that's obviously, you know, just something that then translates into the crypto world. But I suppose it also potentially raises one of the challenges here because, you know, mm-hmm. I was reading Matthew Ball's book on the metaverse and he goes to great lengths to talk about just how difficult it is to render in real time yes. uh, these interactions, you know, where everybody's playing at the same time. Right. And, you know, you can see how, you know, when I think about that, I think, okay, a centralized environment is going to be easier for doing that than a decentralized one. It gets even harder, multiple layers higher to bring all of that coordination, all of that simulation done where everybody is essentially looking at and experiencing a different thing, but also having to experience the same thing at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other that, that sort of philosophically, you can certainly see the appeal of crypto, the idea that these tokens can live across uh, different games, the idea that in some respects, and actually Matthew also talks about this, it's like, yes, the decentralized structure of a crypto environment makes that whole thing all the harder. But one of the things that may well incentivize the creation of all of that is, in fact, the money that comes from a crypto environment. Like, so, like, Absolutely. there's a so, so getting the economics right, I think, is one of the real challenges, but also opportunities here in that you've got to figure out the efficiencies and do mm-hmm. so in a sufficiently decentralized way, but at the same time, bring in right incentives. I mean, you guys are building essentially tools for developers, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, right. how can you can you talk to those ideas uh, and sort of philosophically how you're trying to enable this sort of decentralized development? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I would say for, for people who are not necessarily Web3 native, or even for those of us who, who have been in Web3 for a long time, the easiest way to understand Saga is it is a combination of AWS and NVIDIA. So AWS, in the sense that we are giving the developers their own instance in which to build, which doesn't really exist on a monolithic chain like in Ethereum or Solana, Avalanche, et cetera. At the same time, we are also giving them the highest performance environment possible, like an NVIDIA chip. Uh, And that's why it is so well suited for things like gaming and entertainment. Now, how does that impact the game itself? So I would say that a lot of Web3 games, especially if they have built on these monolithic chains, you know, game design is driven by the infrastructure. And so when they understand that there are constraints around the infrastructure, whether that is congestion, whether that's throughput, they will design the game around that. And if there are gas fees involved, for instance, then the game economics will need to account for that as well. Um, will there need to be game economics at all? I mean, that's another thing that Web3 game designers have to contend with. And so there are all these design questions that are predicated on, I would say, infrastructure that is not ideal for creating an entertainment experience in Web3 gaming. So what we wanted to do was to really open up the possibilities for these Web3 game designers. Now that we have an infrastructure that is much more high performance, that allows you that flexibility to decide what your gas fees are exactly and um, to have your own space in which to build, then you have a lot more freedom to design your game. 
But Michael, you're you're talking about a greater issue there as well, which is what is the interaction between on-chain versus off-chain? And you hear a lot about this in Web3 Gaming. So to have all transactions in a game, so to have all interactions in a game on-chain is incredibly difficult. And many would argue it's not necessary. Right. And probably it's, impossible eventually, right? I mean, probably, it's just it's yeah. inconceivably large yeah. to have all of that happening at once. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So um, then it depends on what exactly do you want to put on the chain? Do you want to put the state of the game on the chain so that you can freeze at any moment in time the state of your gameplay, the assets that you own, et cetera? Are you just looking to do in-game assets? Um, those become important questions for game designers because any single time that you go from uh, on-chain to off-chain and vice versa, it does introduce a little bit of latency in the game, um, which we all know uh, as as gamers. And Sheila, I'm sure you you intimately feel this is frustration um, when you are in the game. Mm-hmm. You just you want to go right. You are in that mm-hmm. world and you just want to go. And so that is that's a really difficult part of it. Is how do you go from what is off-chain? So it feels very much like a Web2 game and in many ways shares the same Web2 infrastructure to on-chain. So your in-game assets, for instance, or the interactions that you're having in this peer-to-peer network with people that you don't know. And so that, that's a very complicated piece that I think goes beyond the protocol. That's also something that Saga is trying to figure out, by the way, mm. is, you know, yeah. yes, we, we do provide that dedicated block space for you. And that's the building block. But there is this platform that sits on top of it, which are all the other things that a game needs in order to be successful, a game launcher, a publisher, a wallet, um, et cetera. And those those interactions will become very, very important to make sure that Web3 Gaming is ultimately a, a viable and fun experience. Join Coindesk's Consensus 2023, the most important conversation in crypto and Web3, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer creators, builders, founders, brand leaders, entrepreneurs, and more. Use code THEHASH to get 15% off your pass. Visit consensus.coindesk.com or check the link in the show notes. Yeah. And this is so interesting, right? Because one thing I, we've talked about on the show before, and Michael, you know, <clears throat> we talk about this quite a bit, is, you know, when I watch my kids and the way that they interact in their digital environment, you know, I, I kind of have this, like, I took this screenshot about a year ago, sometime during the pandemic of my daughter, and she was uh, FaceTiming her friend in the corner mm-hmm. of her iPad. So they had like their chit chat, you know, going on there. And then they're both playing in their game and they're yeah. wandering around with their character, you know, doing their, their avatars are wandering around, you know. And of course, it's a math game because, like I said, we're giant nerds in my family. So they're like, oh, let's go get this, like, you know, purple hair. We want to get the, the cool boots or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, right? yeah. Your stance, and, and yeah. And they're literally chatting, like, their characters are chatting and interacting in the game, but they're also, like, having an entirely separate conversation about, like, some other. And I'm like, what? So I take this screenshot because I'm like, this is the nature of mm. where things are moving. And yeah. the intermediation between our online and offline, our digital realities, like what was real to her? All of that was real to her. Her character wandering around yeah. is real to her. And the chit-chatting with her friend was real to her. And all of that was real. And like, they will take that experience and chat about what their characters did when they see each other in person and, and vice versa. And they're bringing things from their, you know, their chat into the game. So mm-hmm. the idea that we're going to have this separation, like the way I think about gaming from when I was little, like my kind of mental model was always I'm playing a game and then I leave and then I go do something else. And that's the bulk yeah. of my day. 
the seamlessness of this, and you can see this even if you ever go on Twitch, you can kind of see like the community that forms around this. It's a very different kind of mode of engagement. And so thinking about how do we enable some of that, the identity questions around it, like Uh how do we enable that to be more seamless in online and offline environments? Now, pros and cons from a cultural perspective, do we want to lean into this more, you know, but can we stop it? Like, those are all really interesting questions that I, you know, we we could certainly digress and go down that, that path. But what I would love to ask you about, Rebecca, is like some of this is predicated on the idea that we have kind of created almost a gaming exemption for a lot of things in our culture, because we still think, I think our mental model is still, you play a game, it's a thing you do, and then you leave. And we still liken it kind of like to sport in a way, right? You yes. play the game, yep. the game ends. And, then you, yeah. and that's not how games are. Games don't end in the same way. Some do, but many mm-hmm. games don't really end in that kind of way. And I don't think we've accommodated that in the way we think about this from a policy perspective. So so I think there's a sense that games are exempt from a regulatory model, you know, et cetera. However, interesting. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, you know, do you think that that is, and we've even seen actually in drafts around the world, like carve outs for, for game, for in-game assets yeah. or whatnot, right? But as you think about the, the in-gameness of the asset, if you will, being yeah. perhaps eroded a little bit, how do you think some of those uh, principles that apply in other spaces might apply to games? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question, Sheila. And um, you're right that I, I would say of all the policy questions, the regulatory questions that were called up in 2021, 2022 around crypto, gaming was sort of in the background. And I think it preferred to stay there. But what we found in crypto and tech in general is that people are very resourceful when they need a technology to do something for them, they will purpose that technology for that. And so when it comes to gaming with NFTs, a lot of the emphasis is on ownership. So when you own this asset and it can fluctuate in value and it can traverse multiple different ecosystems, then all of a sudden, does it have different characteristics that would take it into stricter regulation? I think that's a question that a lot of gaming companies are starting to think about. The first touch point that most gaming companies had was frankly in the payment space. So they just wanted to make sure that when gamers are looking to purchase these assets or looking to transfer them, that they would be able to do so seamlessly. Now, payments are you know relatively well understood at this point, but in terms of what happens to those NFTs, that's sort of the gray area. I don't know if gaming is particularly eager to come to a solid answer on that anytime soon, but it, it is one of those things where, yes, you know, in theory, you have to play the game, you have to actually enjoy the game, invest in it in order to be able to get access to these NFTs. But if you are resourceful and you need the NFTs for another purpose, can you get access to those NFTs? And I think the more popular, more available Web3 gaming becomes the answer is yes. At that point, I'm sure the regulators will become much more interested in this space. But then it it calls up all sorts of issues, I think, especially with respect to to gaming, because then you start to get into, you know, First Amendment. If we're already talking about is money speech? Well, is IP that's created speech? I mean, I, I think there's a much closer relationship there. So it's it's interesting. I think we're early days though. We're still early days in the same way that gaming sort of stood in the shadows over the last couple of years in terms of regulatory conversations. It's still sort of in the background. I think DeFi is, is much more upfront. But having said that, I mean, who, who knows? The space is really, really growing. Do you feel like there's going to be a difference because of the cultural differences around gaming, right? So when you think about play to earn, it just blew up in Aussie. Yeah. Blew up. Yeah. Absolutely. It was like everybody was doing it. But in the US, eh, not so much, right? So right. do you feel like the regulatory 
response, if you will, might reflect the importance culturally of gaming to a particular geography? Yeah, I, I could definitely see that. I would say that in Asian countries, I mean, the gaming culture is, is very, very intense. Uh, and so looking at gaming assets is probably much more urgent uh, when it comes to the crypto regulatory conversations that they're having versus, say, in the U.S., where it's it's not quite as intense. I definitely do see that differential, Sheila. It actually calls up a, a very interesting question with respect to Web3 gaming in general, because a lot of Web2 gaming, let's say, or just gamers um, who love Web2 games, which is all of us who love gaming, they first looked at the advent of Web3 gaming and were very, very skeptical. First and foremost, you know, what does this add exactly to Web2 gaming? I, I don't think any of us are going to be accused of self-flagellation when we say that Web3, early Web3 games were not on the same level of, say, art direction or game design as Web2 games, but we were pioneering something new. And so we, you know, we had different objectives there. Once NFTs really started to creep into the space, then um, Web2 gamers objected pretty vocally because they said, hey, this has nothing to do with the gaming experience. This has nothing to do, frankly, even with the community. You're actually sort of being exploitative in a way. You are getting these people to spend you know, countless hours on these games. They're earning the tokens and you're, you're wrapping them into the game that way. And what we see is that these populations where it, it actually pays more to play this game than to say hold down a job or you know engage in other activities um those are the populations that these games are targeting and so it calls up those sorts of questions as well i do think that web3 is course correcting there or the market is course correcting on its behalf because the play to earn model is quickly getting modified but i agree that culturally the gaming aspect is is a reason for the differences in urgency of conversation around policy questions here. It also raises interesting questions about like, you know, what is value and what is money and things like that, right? Yeah, because, yeah. you know, the, I think the Axie Infinity case, yeah, it can be successfully, uh, you know, conveniently ignored, if you like, by US regulators. Yeah. Because again, there is that cultural or rather economic distinction in that it's suddenly it's valuable for people mm -hmm. who, who for whom it may not be here. The same questions that people ask about, okay, why would I value a digital skin? Why is that valuable? There's a certain mindset that actually questions the real value of anything digital. And I think that the, some of the, I think the regulatory framing of that, it's possibly still caught up in some of that mindset in that, you know, it, it's hard for them to get their, their heads around the idea that something, you know, like a digital sword is somehow a, a value if you can't take it into the real world. But of course, that's not the way. That anybody playing games thinks certainly certainly not in terms of internally to the game. So it strikes me that you know again whether it's a regulatory framing or also just how we think about game incentives and and the economics of these things, we're grappling with a frontier around value itself. Right. Um, and that you know if you know to Sheila's observation about the way her kids play. There's an there's a digital economy that is is separate and kind of has separate rules from the you know in real life economy. It doesn't make it any less legitimate. It's just that you 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 start to sort of frame things differently. I, I was fascinated just you know first got interested in the connection between gaming and digital before crypto, and there was a um, online game called Eve that is produced by some uh, you know, an Icelandic company. And when I was in Iceland, I explored that, and I was fascinated to know that they had an in-house economist. Uh, so I was an you know I was an economics reporter at the time, and so I, so I was interested in that. Not a gamer, yep. but an economist, yep. or at least mm -hmm. to play one on TV. 
I um, was fascinated by the fact that they were looking at the, you know, the market for, I don't know, here I am just making it up, lithium or something, right? Some some imagined uh, metal that was being yeah. used to make spaceships. And there were moments of inflation and there were moments of of, of deflation. And there were all these sort of interesting dynamics that they, that they could predict from the behavior of these people, seeing them online and, it would, and getting all these economic insights from that, which I thought was fascinating because- on the one hand, you still have these same dynamics, right? Supply, demand, et cetera. Also criminality, there were all these frauds going on. <laughs> but on the other hand, a very different conception of value from what, you know, a mainstream traditional view. Like I was talking to a guy the other day about like, you know, energy costs. And he was saying, well, the cheapest energy is still coal. And I was like, well, that's only if you put it in dollar terms. Right, like it's, right. The cheapest yeah. energy by definition is renewable. I mean, if you talk about mm-hmm. literally, you know, how much, of a resource exists if you use that. So, so the point I'm trying to make is just like there's a mindset around value itself that sort of requires something of a shift if we are going to design the right regulatory frameworks or the regular, you know, even the token economics of these things. That I think is a really important role that this that this industry can play in helping to shape the discussion going forward. I didn't really have a have a question other than that. Other than to make That's that a great point. But I, yeah, but I I suppose one thing that you said that interested me was the degree to which these games until now have been based, as you said, in the, the realm of their their own blockchains, and therefore they've been overly designed to compensate for that. It sounds as if like one of the ways out of that is to give tools that exist in an off-chain world, including, you said, an AWS store that gives you this capacity to then, I suppose, have the freedom to work outside of it, that then enables movement across blockchains that you can start to think differently as a developer. Is that is that fair to say that you're sort of trying to give them the capacity to build in a multi-chain way? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So Michael, let me let me address your your first point first. Sure. And because I, I think that it it really does bear repeating. And I'm sure Sheila, when you have these conversations with people in policy roles, you give this explanation a lot as to, you know, why is it that a board ape, for instance, is legitimately worth millions of dollars? And um, well, I mean, age-old question of whether speculation is legitimate, uh, but there there is something very fundamental there. And it is what you're striking on, Michael, which is what is the definition of value? What is the definition of transferable value? And I think what we're finding, especially with a younger generation, is that NFTs, even tokens themselves, are really not so much about the the dollars and cents or the inherent value of anything. It is really about the iconography. It is an identification of your own identity and which groups you belong to, which communities you really jive with, and um, your standing within those different communities. And so that is where the value comes from. Mm. And to the extent that that offers meaning, um, real meaning to your particular life to your worldview, you will pay for that. You will pay for that and you will defend it. Uh, and that's what we're seeing in crypto generally, um, but certainly it motivates a lot of web3 gaming as well. But with respect to your second question, Michael, about interoperability between games. So this is something that gets to the more, I would say, um, immediate problem that web3 solves for web2 gaming, which is what happens when you invest a lot, but you don't get something commensurate out of it. So you're playing this game, you've been playing it for a long time, you get all these cool in-game assets. All of a sudden, whether it's Epic or Riot or Microsoft, they decide this game is no longer profitable. 
or, you know, something has happened and either your assets are gone or they're going to sunset the game. What do you do then? Mm. You've met all these friends there and you actually, you really like this game. You like the experience of it. So what Web3 does is it allows the game to live on first and foremost. So it allows the community to own it. And also um, for those assets, they are yours. They are yours to have. uh, And therefore you're able to, to do what you want with them. Now you need the technology for that. And Saga does emphasize this. So Saga is built on top of the Cosmos stack, um, which does include a technology called IBC, which is inter-blockchain communication. And it is a messaging protocol that allows for interoperability. So as long as two chains are IBC enabled, uh, you can transfer assets back and forth. It's like TCP IP, in other words, it's just a messaging protocol. So it's incredibly secure. I would say that the vast majority of games that are building on Saga see this as a huge value proposition for their gamers. The fact that, for example, you can have a game that is on Solana and you're earning all these in-game assets. You want to transfer those games over to your presence on Polygon. You can't do that right now in an easy way. But on Saga, you can. Once both of those games are on Saga, then you can start transferring those assets back and forth. And so that interoperability is the kind of freedom that gamers are looking for when they're looking for true ownership of their mm. in-game assets. So yes, that is definitely something that that we emphasize. I can't tell you how many times gamers who play the games that are built on Saga say, we just want our game to be unruggable. They just want to be unruggable. <laughs> yeah. So there the you go. The mantra of the gamer, an unruggable <laughs> yeah, game. There you go. Like, bottom yes. line, bottom line, first principles, right? <laughs> yeah. First principles, exactly, exactly. Protect the game, yes. So, so like, what that's this fascinating as well because it's another way to think about how gaming can be at the cutting edge of how we think about like business models here. Because yeah. I'd, I'd love to see maybe you could tell us what sort of a profile do you have of the gaming uh, developers who are thinking like that, right? Because mm-hmm. because the the classic mindset is a Web two mindset, like gather as many of me, my people as I can, and I will capture them, and they'll be mine. And then if I shut down the game, I can because I don't care about them. If my whole model of business is, no, the value is actually being created by my community and I need to give up some of that if I'm going to expand, that the expansion, the growth, the platform approach to this is that they bring the value and then I, and I'll make money from that because I will generate all of that enthusiasm and ride on their community, but that I can actually give it up and I don't control it is a very different way of conceiving of your business model and the economics of this. So do you feel as if there are people sort of rethinking just generally the, the the business model itself for, for gaming from a Web3 perspective? I think so. I think so. I think this is true for Web3 gaming. I think this is also true for entertainment. So you're absolutely right, Michael, that um, with respect to big gaming studios like your Epic, your Riot, your Microsoft's, Sony's, uh, as well as entertainment studios, this is applicable to them as well. You know, your Warner yeah. Brothers, um, Paramount, NBC Universal, et cetera. Their whole model is let's invest a lot in this piece of intellectual property. And once it comes out, then we can license it up the wazoo. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fact of the matter is, you know, if your intellectual property actually resonates with the audience, if it catches fire, which you hope it does, they will take it on and it will have a life of its own. You can't yep. really contain creativity. I think that's what. It's the fan fiction phenomenon, right? It's It's the fan fiction phenomenon. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I I think for these entertainment studios and for the gaming studios, the question is, has always been, how do we capture the value that our fans are creating? So I'll give you a concrete example. If you are 
a Minecraft server, for instance, and you've contributed a lot to the game and you have a big fan base, a lot of gamers have congregated around you. Is Microsoft ultimately going to reward you for that? What is your relationship with Microsoft? I mean, that that is a, a sort of one-to-one relationship between a contributor and a centralized entity. And I think that that is something that shapes, honestly, for a lot of gamers who are coming into Web3. They want to be able to self-determine their own earnings, their destiny, their contribution to this particular game. (laughs) Um, Looking at the entertainment space, uh, for example, if you did not like the ending to a particular movie, and and some people, you you always have detractors, especially to some of these big franchises, you post your own alternative ending on YouTube. Some of these are really good, actually, Mm. and they attract (laughs) the attention of the studios. And the studios are like, wait a second, the guy who did that, we want to hire him. That's always the answer. We want to hire him. I'm like, no, 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 no. You're not thinking about it the right way. Let him do his thing. Mm-hmm. Let him be creative in his own way. And But have that value be accrued back to the intellectual property that spawned it. So is there a way that you can allow this sort of open source intellectual property to pay for itself? And that's where the Web3 Rails really come in. So I think that gaming and entertainment entities really see it. They see the business model, they see the opportunity, but it is very different from what they had been doing before. So it is a transition. So interesting, Rebecca. And thank you so much for all this insight. I think, you know, gaming has always been at like the cutting edge of innovation in a variety of spaces, both in terms of how we think about culture and society, but also technically. And it's interesting to see how the thriving economies that have been built within gaming systems are now expanding beyond those borders and how that's really affecting the ways that we think about the potential of the entire digital assets ecosystem and the implications that's going to have, of course, from my perspective, you know, for policy and for regulation, but also for kind of thinking about a global community that's already being built in, in within each game. When you think about how gamers think about themselves, there actually is a sense of identity with a gaming community. And the idea that you could then not have to worry about losing that because of the decisions made by a few, you know, people who own a company or a game or whatever that can just kind of decide to offline it is really powerful because I think it allows you to lean into that identity in a way that can be a very helpful. Now, all, we didn't get into any of the discussions around, you know, is there too much in-game identity that can lead to other kinds of things like harassment and bias and all those things are also very real in, in games. And so I personally think, and I wish we had time to get into this as well, that having more openness and having a little more transparency in these systems is going to enable and help eliminate or at least uh, put a spotlight on some of that toxicity that we do know does exist and enable a little more accountability around the actors who are driving that forward. And just a brief comment from you on that. And then unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap. But over to you, Rebecca, just for some thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right, Sheila. I mean, I, I think Web3 Gaming, one of the, the nice things about it is that in many ways, it has uh, first and foremost attracted the overlap between the crowd that really loves Web3 and the crowd that really loves gaming. And it's steadily expanding from there. But the toxicity and the exclusivity that you just mentioned, um, that is, I mean, unfortunately, still part and parcel of uh, the culture in Web3. And I think in many ways in gaming as well. Um, this has been you know, vastly documented and studied uh, but the transparency is is really the the thing that's going to break this open for for the wider industry. The transparency and the fact that we're all very very early in this industry, and I think we're all fighting to get to a certain outcome that will allow this 
industry and the products that really buttress it go forward. And so my hope there is that more people can collaborate on this effort and that will solve a lot of the problems here. But I agree with you that there are issues in this space that even for those of us who are building products, we we need to be cognizant of as we are building. And the, the thing about Web3, and, and you all know this having been in the space for a long time, is so much of the product is the protocol itself. So it is the technology. But it is also the community. The community is in and of itself a product. Um, when you join, quote unquote, join the Ethereum community, what does that actually mean? What is the value that you get out of that? When you join the Solana community, what is the value that you get out of that? And so I, I do think that for all of us who are forming these protocols and these communities, it is incumbent upon us to really set the terms for what that product is. What are the product features there? Is this a community that's really going to celebrate collaboration and creativity and cohesiveness? Or is it something that's going to be much more divisive? You know, there's not a ton of leadership around what can or cannot be be done in this community, et cetera. And so it, it's really in setting those those values and sort of the, the term service, if you will, for that particular community that we're going to see a lot of these gaming guilds, gaming DAOs, you know, game-focused protocols proliferate. So yeah, it's it's, it's a really, really interesting time. And more and more to, to wrap up the whole gaming, entertainment, Web3, um, what does it look like in the future? It's sort of wrap it in, in an example that's probably most present for all of us right now. I think that the people who are going to figure out what this looks like going forward are the same people who figured out how to use TikTok effectively as a communications mm-hmm. platform. Because you know, TikTok yeah, TikTok, I, I think if if you looked at TikTok as a big studio executive, for instance, you probably thought, okay, how do I break up Indiana Jones into 15 second sound bites? That is not the point of TikTok. And it took someone or a group of people to figure out that no, TikTok is about these short, kind of quirky videos where you really get to express your authentic self. And that's how you build community. That's what TikTok has become. And it's it's really a new form of media at this point. I think for Web3, it is, it is going to be the same. It's not so much, okay, how do I sort of um, wrangle Web2 games into Web3 structure, give it a token, and then go from there. It is going to be a new way of gaming, of interacting with these gaming communities, the guilds, the players. Uh, so, I mean, that's what we're incredibly excited by. I think for us, the premise is, There are so many creative people out there, they're going to figure it out, but we need to give them the freedom on the infrastructure level to be able to design those experiences. Mm. So So we're we're going to have to, yeah, we're going to have to leave it there. But I I love that ending on that note, because it really ultimately what we, and I think the premise of our entire show is that, you know, empowering users and creating user-centric models is really what Web3 and blockchain technology enable in new ways, right? And that's the discrimination, essentially, all of that is about ultimately focusing on users and on the communities that they want to build, even if those communities are small or large or they can scale in different ways. So I will, we'll have to leave it there, but thank you so much, uh, Rebecca Liao, co-founder and CEO at Saga. Uh, as always, my co-host, Michael Casey, uh, you thank know, you. thank you so much for your insights. And to all of you, to all of you listening, please come back next week and join us for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adby Levine and our executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. 
And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 